Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as Craig said, we're kicking off a new series on Mark's Gospel called Kingdom DNA. Um, and what I want to start with, I want to <coughs> take you back. Because long, long ago, in a cinema far, far away, a very young, handsome Dave Roderick sat and watched as the film began. I was tempted. I almost got Dave Hathaway up to do the sound effects for us. but <laughs> So there you go. Now, I knew in that moment I was seeing something very different. It, the scale of it, the size of it, and it was one of the best film openings of all time. And the problem we have sometimes when we open Mark's Gospel is we rush through the opening and we miss the fact that it has one of the biggest, grandest openings in the whole of the Bible. But because perhaps we don't know our Old Testament so well, we don't know some of the themes that it's talking about, we maybe miss some of that grandeur, some of that excitement. So what I am going to do is kind of try and help us paint a picture of why this passage matters and why it is on an epic scale. So beginning to read from Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as is written in, the, in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, because it uses the word baptism, we sometimes kind of think in religious terms. But what he's actually saying is, I'm going to plunge you in water, but he will plunge you in the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So, this is the opening to Mark's gospel. In order to fully understand the opening to Mark's gospel, what I want us to do is go back to the opening of the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to Genesis, and then we're going to walk all our way forward from there to Mark's gospel to see why Mark's gospel is so epic. So at the beginning of Genesis, what we see is this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God, in an act of grace, chooses to create the earth, create the heavens. And he creates this good and beautiful thing. And then he decides that actually he wants to place man in it. But it remains his. The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He is the king over this whole creation he has made. But in Genesis we read, 
after he creates Adam and Eve, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So the king over all the earth creates man and woman and places them in his creation. And he says to them, I want you to live in peace and harmony, to be blessed, to be fruitful. But I also want you to have a role in it. You have a vocation, a job to do, to help steward this good creation of mine. So he delegates some of his authority to man to rule part of his creation. And this pattern of God's interaction with man, asking them to live in obedience to him, asking them to rule over part of his creation, we see repeated time and time again throughout the Old Testament. Because we have these great covenants, these great agreements that God makes with mankind. First with Abraham, then with Moses, and then with David. And in each of these, he calls them to faithful obedience, that they are to be faithful to him and him alone. They are to be obedient to the things he asks them to do. But they will get to live in peaceful fruitfulness. And this living in peaceful fruitfulness is a present reality for them. God says you will be blessed as you do this, but it's also a future hope. That actually each of these little covenants, whether it's through Abraham, through Moses, through David, is a picture of something even better that is still to come. If they live in faithful obedience, it will be great, but something truly wonderful is still to come. So it's present reality and future hope. And in particular, the covenant with David says, you will be blessed if you do these things, but one who is coming will be the great king who will rule forever. So not just whilst you're alive, David, I'm making a promise to your descendants, but also that one day this idea of people living in faithful obedience, peaceful harmony will be fully fulfilled under this great king who will rule over them. But Israel, time and time again, fail to provide a world of this future reality. And in fact, instead of acting as stewards for God in their little bit of creation, bringing order to the chaos, pointing people towards God, living in faithful obedience, they go their own way and do their own thing. And so as a result, God says to them, There's no point in me having a people if all that people do is point everyone in the wrong direction. If all they do is behave like everyone else, they're of no use. So he sends them into exile. I'll leave Joe to sort out that nasty hum. Apologies for the technical difficulties. So Israel finds itself in exile. But God doesn't abandon them. He continues to make promises, continues to say, do you know what? One day, I am coming back. One day, you will be restored to that peaceful harmony. One day, you will once again be my people. And so he speaks through the prophets again and again and again to Israel. So in Malachi, we read this. The people crying out under the burden of their exile and feeling like God is a million miles away. They say, where is the God of justice? To which God replies, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So God is saying, I'm coming back. I'm going to come back. In Isaiah 40, where Isaiah flips from warnings to Israel before they go into exile to promises to Israel after exile, we have this beautiful passage here. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says Google God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. That her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here's the thing. The prophets are saying God is coming back. The king you have been waiting for will return. I will send a messenger ahead of him, but be sure of this. My glory is coming back, and it will be revealed to everyone. That is the backdrop to Mark's gospel. So when we turn to Mark's gospel, we have this massive growing sense of the fact the king is coming back and God is going to return and his glory is going to be seen by everyone. So then when you open Mark's gospel and you read the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one of God, the anointed one, the great king, the son of God. There's no mistaking that God is saying in the beginning of Mark's gospel, I am back. You've been waiting for it. You've been longing for it. You've been praying for it. You've been crying out for it. I am here now in your midst. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, slight technical difficulty, as it is written in the book of Malachi that we just read out, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Who does the messenger prepare the way for in Malachi? God, the glory of God to return. Then flipping to Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for who? The Lord. God is coming back. Make straight paths for him. And then it says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. So what Mark is saying here is, John the Baptist is the messenger that comes before the return of the Lord. Make no mistake, the one who is coming is God. Make no mistake that he is acting in his grace and his mercy to rescue. He is stepping into the world to bring about his salvation, to restore things as they should be. So anyone reading this in first century Israel would immediately pick up on some of these themes. That John is, as I say, the promised messenger. John has this incredible attitude. He doesn't seek any glory for himself. Can you imagine being a messenger, building up a massive following, and the entire time saying to the people following you, someone better than me is coming. It's incredibly humble. And then when it introduces Jesus, what happens? Well, Jesus is baptized, and as he's coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. The heavens were rent asunder, as it says in the old translations. A beautiful image from the Old Testament, because when the heavens are rent asunder, who steps down but God? Every time the heavens are rent asunder, the prophet is saying, and God will come into your midst. It is God that's stepping into the situation. So we have this beautiful picture here of Jesus, the Son, the Messiah, the promised one, in whom heaven and earth meet in this moment. And then it goes on again with more and more imagery from the Old Testament. He goes out into the wilderness, 
the picture of God providing for Israel in the wilderness. Temptation, struggle, battle in the wilderness. And then he returns from the wilderness. He goes through the Jordan in baptism. A picture again of the Exodus passing through water. So in 14 verses, Mark effectively draws from the entirety of the Old Testament. All that imagery, all those prophecies, all those stories in 14 verses to pack them in to say, this is the one you have been waiting for. And he is here. And so Jesus steps into the world and begins to tell people about the good news. The good news of God. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So he's effectively saying that whole plan of God to create a people who could live in faithful obedience to him, to live in peaceful harmony, to enjoy his blessing and his fruitfulness is at hand. These great things that you've been longing for are beginning to break out in your midst. Instead of sickness, there is healing. Instead of death, there is life. Instead of poverty, there is provision. All these wonderful blessings of God start to happen around Jesus as he proclaims this kingdom of God, where we live in peaceful harmony with one another, with God and with creation, is in your midst. It's breaking into this situation here. So I guess the question for us, Jesus is asking the same questions of us. The kingdom is near. The time has come. Do we have that sense? Do we have that understanding that God's kingdom is breaking in in our lives, in our situations? And he's asking us, do we want to partner with him? Because this is the question that Israel faced. Here is the king. Do you welcome him? Do we welcome him? Many of us will pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And mean in a kind of ethereal, airy, kind of spiritual sense. But actually, kingdoms are physical places. I don't think there's any mistake. In all of those covenants, they were linked to physical places. God cares about this physical world. He cares about your house, your street, your workplace, your community and neighborhood. And he's saying, I want my kingdom to come in you, through you, into that place, those physical locations. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are saying, I am bowing the knee to the king. I am swearing allegiance to his kingdom. And I am going to give my life to serving the king and bringing in his kingdom. When we talk about faith, do we think of it in those terms? Do you find yourself thinking in terms of, I have made an oath to the king that I am going to live my life obeying him and living for his kingdom? Or, as I many times a day will sometimes do, do I slowly move the throne away from Jesus so that I can sit on it and I can obey what I want in my life and I can live in accordance with the kingdom I would like, the way I would like it? And we face this tension day by day by day, which is why I think it's a daily practice. I don't think it's any mistake that Jesus gave this prayer to the disciples, because in Jewish life, you prayed every day, several times a day. So in some ways, Jesus is saying to them, what I want you to do every day is swear the oath of allegiance to the king. Now, in England, we don't particularly like swearing oaths of allegiance. I know in America, they're far more into this than us. 
Although those of you who've recently done the British citizen test perhaps may have been forced or asked or invited, if that's the right word, to swear an oath of allegiance to the queen, for instance, or the king. But Jesus, in saying this to the disciples, is saying, every day, guys, you face a choice. Who are you living for today? Who are you going to serve today? Your own interests or the interests of the king? And one of the key markers for us of that act of allegiance, that decision to follow Jesus, to give our lives to him and to work for his kingdom, is baptism. Baptism is one of the ways where we identify with the king. And we say, I am no longer living for myself, but I am choosing this day to follow him. And we make those promises during the baptism service. Now, we haven't had a baptism here in a little while, although Peter, bless him, was baptized whilst at Ashburnham. And if I'd been more technically organized, I could have shown you the video. But that was on me. But we may get a chance to show that over the next couple of weeks. But Peter was baptized. We've got another baptism service coming up on the 8th of October. So if you've never been baptized, if you've never, as part of your allegiance to the king, decided, you know what, I want to show everyone that I am choosing to live for him and not for myself, then baptism is a great way to do it, and I would love to hear from you. So come and speak to me or Craig at the end of the service if you'd like to be baptized on the 8th of October. There's still time, and it'd be great to have a number of people baptized, and all of them getting that opportunity to say, in my life, I'm choosing to live for the king. But having said that, do we serve the king? (laughs) It's one thing to say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you, but actually serving the king, as I've said, is a daily choice. It's an hourly choice. And actually, he is inviting us to live lives of faithful obedience, to experience that beautiful peace and harmony that comes from a relationship with him, but also to be a picture of the present reality of the kingdom of God in our midst, but also to point people to that future reality. This is one of the great challenges of church. Church is an eschatological community. It is a present reality and a future hope. It is a sign and a symbol of God in our midst and a sign and a symbol of what is yet to come. And unfortunately, sometimes we are terrible at it and sometimes we're really good at it. But this is the nature of life in this broken world. And so this term, this year, as we kick off a new academic year, My prayer for us is we would be a brilliant picture of that community of God. A brilliant picture of what it lives for people to live in harmony with one another, to bless the communities around them, and be a massive signpost to people of that future reality that is yet to come. Because God is inviting every one of us to be involved in that process of heaven touching earth. What greater vocation is there? What better thing for us to give our lives for over the next 12 months than to be part of heaven touching earth? In our lives, in our actions, in our families, our workplaces, our streets, our communities. Heaven touching earth. Every time we pray for someone and we have an answer to prayer. Every time we share something about Jesus with them and they begin to explore. All these wonderful things and ways in which heaven can touch earth. And God is inviting us to be part of that. And I believe, as a church, we are called in particular to Bristol. This is a a quote from the very wonderful Dave Mitchell, who leads our group of churches. And he, in a video that I show every newcomer to church, 
says this, our vision to reach Bristol doesn't change year by year. Rather, each year we want to press into more of that vision. So if you ask me, what's our vision for this next 12 months? Have we got a new vision? Have you got something shiny? Have you got something new, fresh for us? My answer is no, I haven't. What I've got for you is the challenge to press more and more into the vision God gave us as a church in the first place to reach Bristol. To see every household in Bristol have the opportunity to know Jesus. That's the vision for this church and that's the challenge for us as part of it. And the beauty is we get to do it together and we get to do it apart. This is why I think Jesus uses this image of salt and light. He uses this image of salt which gets scattered. So as we leave this place today and scatter into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our homes, we're scattered, but we get to partner with God in seeing his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But there are also ways in which together we can be a big shining light on a hill, a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand, so that everyone around us can see the goodness of God. And something like the Single Parents Fair, Southmead Stars, Albert's Place, any number of things we do during the week are opportunities for us to partner together to be that light on a stand, that city on a hill. So my challenge to us as church this year is, guys, get involved. Find something. Get on a team. Join in with some others so that together you can be a brighter light shining for God in that situation. But it's not going to be easy. Because the reality is Jesus says the kingdom is near. We see the signs of the kingdom, the elements of the kingdom breaking in left, right and center. But the reality is there's still a lot of not yet. That actually God wants to move and to act and to do stuff today. But the reality of the fullness of his kingdom is still to come. So yes, we will face disappointments. Yes, we will face unanswered prayer. Yes, we will face people being mean to us and just spitting in our faces because of what we're doing. But the reality is that doesn't mean we give up. Because every time we struggle or suffer, we also paint a picture of our Lord. Jesus, who was prepared to suffer, to not put his own interests first, but to serve, to love, and to bless at massive cost to himself. So even when it goes wrong, even when we struggle, even when we suffer, we are still a light on a stand, a city on a hill, scattered salt. Showing people that the way of the gospel, the way of the kingdom, is not necessarily one of celebrity and triumph and success, but it's one of love, service, and sacrifice. So this term, community church, wouldn't it be wonderful if we saw every week heaven touching earth? Through our prayers, through our actions, through our groups, through all the things that we're involved in, that this church might be a city on a hill, a light, on a stand. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for this wonderful picture in Mark's gospel of you exploding into the world in fulfillment of all those promises to bring your kingdom. And Lord, we say today, once again, here we are and we bow the knee to you, that you are king. We put you on the throne, Jesus, and say we want to serve you and your kingdom, not our own interests. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us today, tomorrow, the weeks and months ahead. Would you help us to continually be praying, but also putting into action in our own lives, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my life, my house, my street, my workplace, my family, my friendship groups. 
Would your kingdom come, we pray. And we pray, Lord, that this year we would see more and more stories of heaven touching earth through this, your church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If I can hand back to the band.